Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. It is brought to you this week by ExpressVPN and Squarespace. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Jason Snell, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Stephen Hackett. Hello. Hey, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. Happy New Year to all the listeners out there. Um, we haven't done a regular episode in a month. Because <laughs> we did Apollo last time, Apollo 8. And uh, there's a lot going on. There's a lot going on in space, turns out. Yeah, and m- most of it's in the very uh, <laughs> the very recent past. Some of it's breaking today, even. Um, yeah, we actually delayed our recording because of a, a New Horizons press conference. Mm-hmm. So, huh. Yeah, interesting. Um Let's get started, though, with some pre-flight checklist items, or as we like to uh, call it, Prefect, <laughs> because it's a dumb acronym that we made I up. I forgot what it stands... Uh, I mean, it is pre-flight checklist, but all mixed up, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's cheating to be pre-flight checklist. Because um, it's PFC, but then we added other letters that are in the words, and it's cheating, like, like they do in space acronyms. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, so my pre-flight checklist item is... Uh, a moon landing. There is a moon landing impending. I don't believe it's happened yet. It may happen by the time you listen to this. It's planned, but it's very secretive because it's a Chinese moon landing. So there is a spacecraft called Chang'e 4 that is going to land on the moon, and it is going to land on the far side of the moon, which would make it the first spacecraft to land on the far side of the cool. moon. Yeah, now this is hard to yeah. do. And that's why it hasn't been done. There are a few reasons it's hard to do. Let's start with the terrain first. So the side of the moon that we see has all the mare on it, which are basically cooled off lava plains, and they are relatively flat. And so that's where most of the Apollo, most all, most of the Apollo landing sites were. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you see the Sea of Tranquility, right, that is that is one of these mare, yeah. the, the, it's a, a lava plain from when the when the moon was molten and then it cooled. And these were the big, uh, you know, big lava, lava-y bits that cooled. As it these... even sounds flat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, sea of Tranquility. But here's the funny thing. If you look at the far side of the moon, which you can only do because, you know, pictures from, from Apollo 8 and, uh, and other spacecraft that we've had that have taken pictures of the far side of the moon... It doesn't look like the near side. It doesn't look like the moon that we see in the sky because it doesn't have those mare prominently displayed. Those are the things that make the face and the man in the moon. Um, it's more just like uh, craters, just kind of a, a uniform set of craters. And guess what? That means it's harder to find a place to land. <laughs> and so if you're trying to land on the far side of the moon, you have a problem. They're landing uh, Chang'e 4 in the South Pole Aiken Basin uh, and they're they're landing in the von Karman crater, which is basically one of the flatter parts of the lunar far side, and that's why they've chosen it is because they want that to be, uh, the, you know, a, a safer place for them to go. And we've imaged enough there that they, you know, they were able to target that, and that's all great. The other problem is. How, how do you talk to somebody on the lunar far side, as you and I know, Stephen, from the Apollo Eight episode we did, uh, when you go back behind the moon and the moon is between you and the earth uh there's no radio (laughs) contact they say goodbye yeah there's no contact at all right i mean the the moon blocks all of it and that was what made apollo 8 and all those burns uh sort of so hair raising because the ground wouldn't know if those burns were successful until radio silence was over and if it happened at the time predicted, and the burn went well, but if it didn't, there was a problem. Really added a level of stress to all of those lunar missions. Yeah, 
for sure, for sure. So, what did they do um, for this? And the answer is, it's actually very similar to what we do with some of the Mars missions and all that. What you do is you put a relay satellite up. Wait, wait and like, a, like so, a relay FM satellite? I was not consulted on this expense. Yeah, well, again, you know, access to space is coming down, <laughs> and now we can just with I can just take the petty cash <laughs> and buy a cube a CubeSat and put it put it up there. So. This is what I got you for your birthday Thanks. as a CubeSat. I appreciate that. Um, it, the, so it's a relay satellite called, relay FM satellite, called uh, Che Chao, which was launched in May of 2018. And it is at a Lagrange point, which is one of these uh, stable gravitationally mm-hmm. uh, locations. It's about 40,000 uh, 40, miles or 65,000 kilometers away from the moon. And it's in a location that is always visible to Earth and that can see the lunar far side. And so it is the relay satellite for this mission, which means and anything we do on the lunar far side, this is how it has to be done, is that basically you need to put up a communication relay or a set of relays that can see the far side and the Earth. Otherwise, you can't talk to the Earth, and that's not great. So they did that. That's already there. And now all the news reports say that Chang'e 4 is going to attempt a landing because I think it's already in orbit and it's just a matter of they're going to attempt a landing. Um, It's imminent as we record this. So we'll have more about what's going on with that later. It's got a bunch of cameras. It's got, you know, some other stuff on it. And it's definitely part of uh, laying the groundwork for what the Chinese Space Agency wants to do, which is a sample return mission from the moon, which would be, I believe, Chang'e 5, <laughs> and that would be later this year. So there, um, you know, China is definitely kind of ramping up its uh, its moon exploration stuff. And although I, uh, I, we talk about political and geopolitical things on this show a lot because so much of space from the space race onward has been political and geopolitical in nature, I cannot think, help but think that China's interest in the moon is helping spur the U.S.'s interest in the moon <laughs> just seems like maybe uh, a reason one one way to get people really interested in the moon is to have uh, somebody else's government all over it, and then you go, "Hey, wait a second, we were there first and uh, and anyway, so we'll we'll see where where that goes. But I'm looking forward to the uh, news about the Chang'e Four. Yeah, that'll be cool. We'll be sure to follow up on that. And this is just the beginning of what I think is going to be. Uh, a long series of stories about lunar activity. This feels like the beginning of, you know, if, if NASA and, and ESA and all these agencies do what they say they want to do, there'll be a lot more to talk about in the coming years. There's a lot going mm-hmm. on. Yeah. Uh, to get there, though, we need a rocket. And that means it is time for the SLS segment, Space Launch System segment, explaining geopolitics, mechanical systems, engineering achievements, news, and trivia. SLS segment. So I want to talk about the liquid hydrogen fuel tank. So if you remember, we've talked about the SLS before. It is a sort of a remix of some old ideas and some new ideas. And there is a large fuel tank in the stack that is actually, if you just look at it, you might think, oh, they just stole the shuttle fuel tank and bolted it onto this thing. So there are a few differences we can get into. But the first liquid hydrogen fuel tank for SLS has been transported uh, from New Orleans up to uh, Marshall for testing. Marshall, they do a lot of the uh, structural integrity testing before things go on to Florida to be uh, assembled in the vehicle assembly building. 
And this tank, if you look at these pictures, I mean, these, these tanks are enormous and they put them on a barge and they and they put them on a truck and they get them there all in one piece. Uh, but it is a, it's a big step, you know, in the Apollo age, when we've been putting all these Apollo episodes together, uh, the next one's coming up in March, uh, I'm always struck by just sort of the the logistics of, you know, the spacecraft and all of its components are built all across the U.S. And they all sort of trickle into Florida over time and they get assembled there. We spoke about this again in Apollo 8 where the, the lunar lander wasn't ready because of issues. And so they had to – that was a uh, factor in changing what Apollo 8 was going to do. So it's extremely complex in getting all these things uh, together. But this external fuel tank being uh, transported to Marshall is a, is a big step. Uh, I did want to talk a little bit about the differences. I was actually unclear about the differences till I dug into it a little bit. So the diameter is is basically the same as the external fuel tank used by the shuttle. It is a little bit shorter at a, only 149 feet tall. So a little bit shorter, but same diameter. Uh, and this new tank is only used for hydrogen, where the external tank for the shuttle used or, or held both hydrogen and oxygen. Uh, the way the SLS is put together, oxygen is stored elsewhere. So it's a whole lot of fuel in this thing, and uh, as the testing and everything goes well, uh, this is uh, another step down the path to to a flight of the SLS. Uh, the I was reading, you mentioned the barge. I was reading something about the Soviet space program, and it actually theorized that one of the reasons that the Soviet Union had a hard time making a rocket to match the Saturn V and get to the moon was that they had to... Uh, they they had to break down their rockets into smaller parts and take them to Baikonur Cosmodrome because they didn't have water access. And so they couldn't just have these enormous parts on barges. Whereas at uh, Kennedy, it's on the water. And so they built this whole system where you could take these things across the, you know, across the Gulf and around the bottom of uh, Florida and up, and you could just use the sea to transport these enormous objects, and that the Russians uh, didn't have that ability. And it's funny to think that the course of history may have been changed merely by the fact that we had barges and they didn't, but it may be the case because they're awfully convenient. Hey, sometimes it just it comes down to those simple things. You know, I live in yeah. Memphis. We mm-hmm. have the Mississippi River here. My old job, my office overlooked the river and. Especially during like, um, like uh, you know, the end of cotton season or soybean season or something, the river here is just full of barges of, of agricultural products moving up and down river, yeah. and it really is astounding how much is moved like this. And and of course, to your point, the space agency has used that for a really long time because if you need to move something big. In some ways, in some places, it's your only option, right? You can't drive right. an external fuel tank from Louisiana up to Huntsville. Like, you just can't do it. You've got to go by water as far as possible. It's pretty an interesting thing that I'm sure someone thought about when they planned all these space centers, but it's something that I think I at least don't consider all that often until you see an image like this. All right, well, we have big, big news from the outer solar system to talk about, and we're also going to look forward to what's going on uh, in space in 2019. But before we do that, we're going to take our first break. Uh, Let me tell you about our first sponsor. This episode of Liftoff is brought to you in part by ExpressVPN. Now, we've seen a lot of stories, scary stories, about online security breaches lately. It's natural to wonder where your data is going when sending something as simple as an email 
can put your private information at risk. You're probably being tracked by all sorts of websites you use. Uh, maybe even your internet provider, because that's a thing that internet providers can do, is they know where all of your traffic is coming from and they can analyze it. Um, you're not necessarily uh, in, in, having any privacy in those situations. They can see where you're going and what you're browsing and all of those things. And they can take that data and potentially sell it to other people who want to make some profit over your personal information. You can take back your privacy, though, by using ExpressVPN. It secures and anonymizes your internet browsing. It encrypts your data. It hides your public IP address. You can turn it on with just one click. The easy-to-use easy apps, super easy. Just tap on my iPad. is just like tap a button. That's it. They run seamlessly in the background of your computer phone or tablet. Costs less than $7 a month. Rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar. Comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so you can try it. And if you don't like it, you can get your money back. And if you ever use public Wi-Fi, so you're at the local cafe or whatever, and you want to keep the bad guys away from your unencrypted data, yeah, uh, use ExpressVPN. Now, I've used it a few times, uh, especially on my iPad, and it's super easy and worked great. And I'm not going to say that it allowed me to stream uh, the BBC live, but it, it totally did. Because you can also say where your VPN comes out on the other end. And I said the UK. And then I watched some BBC. It was pretty cool. Anyway, if you don't want your online history in the hands of your ISP, in the hands of data resellers, in the hands of criminals, whatever it is, protect yourself. Protect your data. Lock it all up in ExpressVPN. And uh, find out how you can get three months free with a one-year package by going to expressvpn.com slash liftoff. That's expressvpn.com slash liftoff for three extra months free with a one-year package expressvpn.com slash liftoff. Thank you to ExpressVPN for their support of Liftoff and all of Relay FM. So I think we should get into the news of the day. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. It is New Horizons, which has flown by and taken pictures of Peanut. <laughs> you mean uh, MU201469? Is that it? Is that the number? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and they they're calling it Ultima Thule, although um, you know, I I think look, we said we said on this show Peanut was the right name. I think we've been proven right. Um it's very exciting. So, um first images are down. They are kind of pixely, but there are way higher uh resolution images that will be coming if you um haven't heard it. it's the same story as with Pluto, yeah. which is they fly by it. They're, uh, they say goodbye to the spacecraft, basically, before it flies by. So good luck. And then the spacecraft is on its own doing this complete massive data collection as it passes by these objects, by Pluto and now by Peanut, where they're, they're uh, taking all the pictures and all the sensors and all the computer time, all the storage space is devoted to grabbing all the images while they're close. They don't have time. They're not pointing toward Earth to relay information. They go dark. And then when it's all said and done... It radios back a signal saying, basically, got it. I'm still alive and I got it. And so the way the timeline worked is on New Year's Eve, just after midnight Eastern time, it the flyby happened. And then on New Year's Day, like 12 hours later or something, they got a sig- an initial signal bl- back from uh, New Horizons, which basically said, I'm alive and here's the status of my hard drive basically mm-hmm. of the ssds on this thing and and that's important because basically what it said is i got all the data right. i saved all the data there was no malfunction or anything the the hard drive is full and now 
Uh, now we're at the point where, like with Pluto, it's turned back toward Earth and it is downloading all of that data out of its massive SSDs at the data rates required when you're that far out in the Kuiper belt. It will be uh, two years before all that data comes off the spacecraft. And they prioritize certain images uh, in order to get a first glance. And I think one of the things they're doing, too, is that it, it tells them, because they do all these like image sweeps that they pro- program in advance, obviously. Like I said, they got to do that. And they get these lower resolution images down, and it tells them basically like how to prioritize. Like, where was it? How far was it to the left? Was it to the right in our camera? Because then they can go, oh, you know what would be the best images to go next? And they can actually then prioritize certain data sets and get those down next. We're at the point right now as we talk where those first relatively close images that are fairly low resolution have come down and they have requested, you know, they're going to get the high res stuff uh, up to, they they say basically they're going to get a megapixel image of this thing eventually. Um, but right now, so I, I, if you, if you look at the initial news stories here, you may be disappointed and you're like, that's it. It's just a, you know, a, a pixely peanut? And the answer is no, there's much more to come. Uh, and what's here now is really interesting, but there's also much more to come at higher resolution. They're just, uh, you know, this is how it starts. And as we said, I, I'm, I'm flashing back, Stephen, to when they did the Pluto flyby and we talked about it, because it's sort of like, you kind of couldn't, I mean, this is all happening for technical reasons, but you kind of couldn't pick a better way to do it because it allows them to have multiple press conferences, mm-hmm. multiple announcements. People get excited about new discoveries all the time. And the truth is, it's because the data link is so slow from way out there that we have to wait. But it does create interest and anticipation and all of those things. So now we're in the heart of it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you looked at the news 24 hours ago, 12 hours ago today, it's all different stuff. And that will continue to be the case as time moves forward. Again, just like it was with Pluto, right? They had the initial stuff. They kind of went away for a while. They came back and said, hey, you know, we now know this, this, and this. Here are new images. Eventually, we have that 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 uh, high resolution picture of Pluto, which I think, uh, at least for a while, I know was the desktop on your computer. <laughs> yeah, it was. I, I I switched when I upgraded my Mac to Mojave. I switched to a uh, a Mars rover mm-hmm. picture that that they called Mars Mojave because I thought it was really cool that there was a you know a <laughs> desert desert operating system with desert planet. But um, uh, in anticipation of this flyby, I, I switched a couple weeks ago back to my giant Pluto, yeah. which is beautiful. So if that image, that image is a good indication of what the spacecraft is capable of and what we should get from this flyby again over time. It's going to take a little while. Let's talk about this this body a little bit. It's a pretty interesting little world so far. You know, we don't know uh, much about, I think, I think the images they, they released today on the second were it was like a pixel per every 140 or 150 yards, so not super fine-grained. Uh, more will come out, but there's already a lot to see and a lot to talk about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's again, it's going to keep getting better, but uh, we've already gone from only having one pixel to having like eight pixels, <laughs> and now it's sort of dozens of pixels, and it will go all the way up to a million pixels eventually. Mm-hmm. So talking about the, uh, the, the peanut shape, that ended up being a pretty accurate descriptor. So uh, it is actually two lobes. Uh, They've named the lobes uh, Thule for the smaller upper one, uh, Ultima for the larger lower one. The size difference basically is three to one, and uh, the the image they're showing today is is straight on, but uh, they say that they've got detail from the rotation and everything, that these are pretty spherical bodies. 
We could talk about why in a minute, but it, it's kind of these two uh, spherical bodies stuck together in an area that they're calling the neck. Right. And this is what's called a contact binary, which has been, it's felt as a fairly common thing in the solar system to have a contact binary, but we're going to get it close up here. And the idea is that there's two separate spherical objects that have, or semi-spherical objects, that have kind of come to rest and attach to each other. Um, which is why Peanut, not a bad name, although it does look like a snowman or uh, like BB-8 <laughs> for Star Wars fans out there. It does actually kind of look like that. It's, uh, yeah, but Peanut was the right name. So, um, so yeah, contact binary. Everybody's going to know um, who didn't know before about what a contact binary is because this, uh, this Peanut is that. Mm-hmm. It's not, I mean, and they didn't know from a distance whether it was going to be two objects rotating around each other, but it turns out it's not. They're actually attached at the neck. Mm-hmm, exactly. Um, and so let's talk a little bit about maybe how this formed. I think it's, I think it's uh, an interesting thing, and it gets into the reason New Horizons is studying it in the first place. So these spherical bodies most likely were formed by very small uh pieces of debris, uh, ice bodies starting to collide and interact with each other. And the fact that they're spherical indicates that they are made up of smaller chunks and that the gravity is holding them into a sphere. We talked about this a long time ago when we talked about outer solar system moons, how above or below a certain size, it's hard to actually become a sphere. You need a set amount of gravity to do that. And some of those really small moons, they're kind of squished, uh, and th- that can be a, a factor there. But these two bodies uh, slowly forming, this is like four and a half billion years ago, it's a long time ago, uh, slowly building up their own mass, and then once they're both big enough, uh, very slowly uh, pulling together. And I, and I liked how they described uh, you know, the impact of these two these two lobes, these two objects, it was like, it's, it's like if you bumped somebody uh, while pulling your car into a parking spot, right? Like just a mile an hour, maybe very gently colliding, uh, no real debris formed from that, you know, no big chunk of one of the missing because of it, just very slowly coming together over time. Yeah, it's kind of funny to think about that. And they're really interesting interested in uh what the composition of the little neck part is because it does seem to be bright brighter than the rest of it and uh, it's fun to think about that the idea that these sort of snowballs accreted over time and we're in this dance where they're kind of rotating around each other and slowly slowly coming together to the point where they now just sort of rest against each other and are basically one object and are not spinning nearly fast enough to fling one another away so they have reached this point of stability uh, where they uh, they just kind of attach and uh, and that's the part where you could really do some serious sledding because those are the <laughs> steep parts at the neck. Yeah, and and there's it's believed that it's just the gravity holding them there. That there's not a mechanical you know uh, there's nothing mechanical holding them together. I should say it's just their gravity slowly slowly coming together. The neck is interesting too. Like you said, it's it's where they join, so it's 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 very steep on both sides. So if you sort of picture two spheres in your mind where they touch, you know the slope down into that contact point is going to be very steep on all sides, and that kind of goes with this idea that uh, this neck area may have accumulated debris from the surface over time. So they did show some reflectivity images. So how much 
sunlight bounces off of this body back uh, at the spacecraft, back into space? And the answer is very little. It's a very dark body. I think they said the reflectivity was something like that of potting soil. It's not, it's not a bright object, which makes it really hard to see. But the neck is, is the brightest region. There are a couple of bright spots on both lobes, but the neck is pretty consistently bright with what they've seen so far. And so it may be that whatever that light material is has actually like kind of gone downhill into this valley where where they two meet, which is uh, pretty interesting to think about. I, I don't think they know what the surface is. I think that they ha- sort of had some ideas. I don't think anything is um, finalized yet, but th- the neck is a, a very unique little spot in this world. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I, Again, I'm just coming back to, I want more higher resolution imagery, which the, which I'll get, right? We're, we're all going to mm-hmm. get it. This is just whetting our appetite, which I love. I love the that it is this series of uh, increasingly high resolution things. It is, we all get to participate in this discovery along with the scientists, right? It's not like they're hoarding this data. They're waiting for it. They're getting the data back and then they're doing a press conference a couple hours later. So it's definitely, um, you know, it's where we're watching science and discovery of the outer solar system happening in real time. It's really exciting. Yeah. And, and that, that goes to why this is taking place. So these are very primitive objects. These are very primitive worlds out there at the edge of the solar system and the Kuiper belt. And it is believed that if we can study these, what they're made of, how they formed, how they joined together, we can learn a lot more about how our own planets were formed, right? So if you take what happened at uh, Ultima Thule and you blew that up in a much larger scale, then like what of that makes sense with the way that you know, a rocky planet was formed in the inner solar system. And so studying how these two bodies came together, how they're held together in gravity, how long that took, all of that can feed into our models of understanding about how uh, not only our own solar system planets came to be formed, but I think that can give us lessons on how exoplanets are formed as well. Yeah, this is the whole idea here is it's a lab of uh, of the uh, of the early days of the solar system. And we have never had the ability to study these objects like the Kuiper belt has become such as we've talked about on this podcast before such a huge part of solar system exploration the last decade or so as our telescopes get better and um and now here you know here we are we we've got this with new horizons which was originally designed to just go to pluto but now has been able to uh, be steered on to another body and it's just like this is huge this is a part of the solar system that we have not really seen or known or understood until relatively recently at all and so to be out there studying it is uh it's huge it's huge for our understanding of how the solar system formed and what it formed of and uh and you know the shape of it and why it is the way it is mm-hmm uh, interestingly, at least at this point, and they they in the press in the press thing today, they said you know this could change with higher resolution imagery, but it seems like there are no at least obvious large impact craters, which is uh, you know they they, they kind of just said that. I don't think there's any thought into why that may or may not be, and it may turn out that there are. So one thing to remember, I said it a second ago, uh, the you know the spacecraft coming in this first image, the sun is directly. Uh, behind the spacecraft in this first image. So that flattens out any surface elevation, like any shadows formed by that, right? So if you think about this, uh, if you take a picture of something like straight on a bright light, it's just hard to see some of those details. And as further images are downloaded, as the spacecraft passes 
this uh, this tiny little city-sized world, we will get detail on the surface elevation. So we'll see shadows, we'll see relief. And so it may be that there are impact craters, but at least at this point, there don't seem to be any that are that are major. And it may be that this has just avoided any of those because of its size. Uh, again, this is the first time we've seen a Kuiper Belt object up close. So we don't we don't know if this is unusual, if it's how they all are, but it's an interesting point, especially we're talking about the, the far side of the moon earlier. These smaller bodies that have less gravity, uh, they're smaller targets. And so it may have made it through its life without any major collisions. Yep. Yep. We'll know more soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, something else we'll know more about is the the color, right? So they, they said today that it's a, it's right. a reddish brown. But the source of that color is another. There was a really interesting question from a journalist about uh, comparing it to uh, the images of Pluto, which also share part of that that sort of reddy brown color, talking about how that took place versus how this took place. And that's all sort of open ended at this point, I think, isn't it? Yeah, I think they, you know, they hypothesize that a lot of these objects are red in color because of the chemical reaction. That leads to like the, uh, it's the deposit of tholins right on the surface, and it's a from a reaction to the the sun over very long amounts of time. I believe is how it works. It's a chemical reaction. Um, they said that the color is a good match for the um, upper uh, spot on uh, on Charon, the uh, the companion to Pluto. Um, but there's more science to be done there too. This is you know again we don't have a, a huge selection of uh, objects in the outer solar system where we have any deep knowledge of so. It's uh, it's it's there's more to be said there, but it is fun to think that there are all these red rocks floating mm-hmm. around out in the uh, out in the outer solar system. Yeah, and you're right. This is the the one we've seen, right? This is the f- the most distant object we've ever explored. Uh, yeah, we've ever done a flyby of right because the v- Voyager and uh, there's some various probes that are further out, but they're not doing anything anymore other than r- radioing back about what they're doing. Whereas here, there's a flyby and. Um, we should probably talk about the where where they might be going next because this isn't the end. Yeah. They've got two a two year data download, and uh, Alan Stern, the principal investigator, was saying how they focused on the mission and were not really thinking about what comes next. It's very uh, sports kind of one game at a time kind of thing going on. But you know the spacecraft is healthy; it does have propellant, and this object was discovered by the team. Uh, there was a really great piece that I think did I I don't know I, I we might have linked to it on the on the Tumblr but basically there's a piece that I read about how they went about finding this thing and the answer is the New Horizons team essentially found this object so they could fly by it they are doing all of this work in terms of trying to reach. Uh, another object that was in their flight path. And the problem is when viewed from Earth, this section of the sky that they're in has the Milky Way behind it, which is, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of stars, which means it's very hard to see a little dark ice object moving against that kind of a background. And so they had to do, they did a lot of surface analysis and they couldn't find it. So then they, they did a proposal for Hubble and the Hubble said you need to do a basically you need to do a trial to see if this will work because it was going to be I believe the largest single project use of the Hubble Space Telescope in terms of time so they did the sample uh, and it worked right and they found objects including some that are not targets for them at all but were other interesting extra you know or Kuiper Belt objects 
So um, then they did the whole survey and they, that's where they found this. I imagine, based on what they said in the press conference today, that somebody somewhere is working on this, not necessarily the New Horizons team per se, but that there are other astronomers out there who have been working or are planning to do some work to find out where else they could go. But um, Alan Stern basically said that they're going to do like an RFP next summer, like summer 2020, and figure out what they might do next, uh, because they've got a lot going on right now with just getting this data back. But it is an interesting question to, you know, can we develop by more observation uh, a plan that might get them to some other interesting object in the in the Kuiper Belt, because the Kuiper Belt is enormous. And even though the distances are enormous, um, they've got enough propellant, they may be able to approach some other object if... Um, if they can spot one, but the ch- that's the challenge is that they're, they aren't picking from a menu here. They literally have to discover the object that they want to fly by. It, it, anytime I think about this, it's it sort of, it makes me smile that this object wasn't known when they launched the spacecraft. Yeah. Yeah. They, it, it literally was found so that they could uh, go there. I, I hope they get to do a third one. Uh, I think that That'd be great. having another data point in the Kuiper belt would, A, it would, it would give us another point of reference to compare this object to because right, this is the only one uh, that we've seen up close. But you know, this this spacecraft and this team have been so successful in in their mission and extending it with this. I hope they get another shot to do it. They've totally earned it. All right, so we will keep up with New Horizons. I'm sure we will be talking <laughs> talking about their their news as it continues to to come out over the the coming weeks and months. Uh, but for now, we're gonna we're gonna turn our attention to uh, the space industry in 2019. But first, I want to thank our second sponsor. This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by Squarespace. Make your next move with Squarespace. It lets you easily create a website for your next idea with a unique domain name, award-winning templates, and more. So think about your to-do list. What sort of things are on there? Maybe you need an online store, or maybe you need to create a portfolio, or maybe you want to start blogging in the new year. Where Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that lets you do just that. The best part is there's nothing to install. There's no patches to worry about, no software upgrades. You don't have to worry about becoming a, a, some sort of system administrator because Squarespace simply has it covered. They have award-winning 24-7 customer support if you need any help. They allow you to quickly and easily grab a unique domain name, and you can choose one of those award-winning templates that are all beautifully designed to show off your great ideas. I've used Squarespace for a really long time. Uh, one of my family members has a like a very small sort of community nonprofit, and she needed a website built just to tell people about their mission. And I put together a Squarespace site for them. And now they can take donations. There's an email contact form, photo galleries, showing their work in their community. And the best part is I set it up, and now they can go in and edit the content very easily. You don't have to worry about breaking anything like you do with other systems. Squarespace is just really simple to use. Their plans start at just $12 a month, but you can start a trial with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com liftoff. When you decide to sign up, use the offer code liftoff to get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain and to show your support for this show. Once again, that's squarespace.com slash liftoff and the code liftoff to get 10% off your first purchase. We thank Squarespace for their support. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. All right, so space industry in 2019. What are we, uh, what are we looking forward to? Do we want to start with commercial crew? 
Yeah, yeah. Let's see. So just what to look for. This is our first episode of 2019, so let's look forward. Commercial crew, this might be the year it actually (laughs) happens. Uh, If it doesn't, we're going to have to create like a new acronym for (laughs) the commercial crew segment. Um, Now, it might be. So SpaceX is planning, as we record this, they are planning to launch Dragon uh, Crew Dragon Demo 1 on January 17th. So, you know, that is very close. So SpaceX is very close to launching their uncrewed mission, demoing the Crew Dragon. So they're going to take their their uh, crewed capsule design that they built for commercial crew, put it on top of a Falcon 9, and launch it. Um, and this is like the final test before they put people in it. So if that all goes well, the feeling is that this summer... Uh, sort of uh, July, maybe July or August, SpaceX will launch their first crewed commercial crew mission to the International Space Station. Um, that's the test mission that was, they already announced the crew for it, and it's, I think, two people on that one. Boeing is planning a Starliner test. That's their commercial crew vehicle later this spring. They haven't set a date yet. Uh, they're definitely running a little behind SpaceX, it seems, at this point. Of course, anything can happen. SpaceX could have a problem, and uh, they could launch first. It's entirely possible. It's not a race. They both have contracts. Um, if the Boeing Starliner test works, then they would also plan a crewed launch for later in the year, and we they've named the crew. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Uh, three people, I think, on that one going to the International Space Station. And just to put this all in perspective... Um, in July, it will have been eight years since the space shuttle flew for the last time. That was the, I can't believe it's been eight years since I went to Kennedy for the Atlantis launch, but it will be eight years in July since humans launched to space uh, from the United States on the ground, not counting the test pilots who went 50 miles up in that uh, Virgin Galactic flight. Anyway, first time that our astronauts uh, will have gone up from the U.S. in eight years, or almost eight years, if this works out. So I think, you know, it's looking pretty good that 2019 is going to be the year of commercial crew at last. It sure seems like it. And it's going to be I'm, – I'm, what I'm looking forward to is seeing how these companies uh, sort of handle the stuff around it. So, like, SpaceX is really good at the the press engine. They live stream everything. Boeing <laughs> doesn't really have that sort of thing in place, right? Uh, not Definitely not to the level SpaceX does. Um, no one really does. And so I, th- I think it's a time for Boeing to sort of get out in front of people as, hey, we're part of this really important thing that's happening. You know, here's our spacecraft. Here's our, here are our testing things. Uh, I'm looking forward to that sort of that sort of angle of it, like the press angle of it, because I think that's a really interesting story. We've talked about it a bunch on the show, but that's an important factor in this. You know, it's not as important as like crew safety and like the test should go well. I'm, I'm not saying that, but that's what I'm going to be looking to, especially toward at Boeing is seeing how they present this to the public as this yeah. is a thing that we're doing. Because, you know, they're a company that like everyone knows them, right? Like everyone who's ever flown an airplane knows who Boeing is, but a lot of the stuff in the, in the space industry and in the, in the defense industry, uh, they don't talk about. And this will be an opportunity for them to sort of get out in front of people in a new way. We'll see what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, so pl- I compiled the list of planetary exploration that's going on. And um, my overarching comment about it is um, 
I don't think any big planetary missions are launching. This is that yawning chasm that uh, that Emily Lakdawalla told us about. How how like there are missions in the planning stages, and there's uh, you know Mars twenty twenty is in twenty twenty in twenty nineteen. We got a lot of ongoing missions and some prospects for some new. Talking earlier about the moon, some new miss- missions to the moon. So new horizons, right? Huh. <laughs> That's planetary exploration in 2019. Uh, Chang'e-4, we mentioned. Yeah. That, and maybe even a 5 with a sample return. Our buddy Osiris-Rex mm-hmm. is uh, making more passes at Bennu, although it's not going to land and try to do its sample grab until 2020, I think. Um, Mars Insight has a bunch of instruments that it hasn't deployed yet to start monitoring the interior of the planet Mars. So that's awesome. And then there are two possible other lunar landers beyond Chang'e, which are one from India and uh, one from Israel. There's actually a, an Israeli lunar lander project that was left over from when they were doing the Lunar X Prize that nobody won the prize. And that there's still a possibility that it might actually land, uh, do a moon landing this year. So we might have, this might also be the year beyond commercial crew, the year of um, moon stuff, like a lot of moon stuff, which is uh, which is exciting. It's not... You know, again, it's a little disappointing that we don't have a big launch of some mission to the outer solar system or something like that. But uh, but we do have a bunch. There's still a bunch going on in terms of planetary science. Yeah. James Webb Telescope. Not in your... It's still <laughs> your still, out, still out there. Uh, yeah, still yeah. out there. It's best not talk about things like dates or budget. <laughs> talk about the James no, Webb. No, the passage of the, the passage of time from one year to another really does call into you know all of these things that are that are like well I guess 2018 wasn't the year of commercial crew maybe 2019. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and all this to say doesn't rule out like the stuff that's going on. So Juno is still at Jupiter. We have the Parker right uh, solar probe. Parker solar probe. There yeah. there are other things taking place, but as far as missions coming off the ground. You're right. This is the beginning of what's going to be a, a, a multi, multi-year quiet period, which is a, which is a bummer. Yeah, yeah, and we've got, yeah, there, there, there are spacecraft all over the solar system, mm-hmm. but uh, right now uh, there's not a lot uh, that 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 we're doing. So there's there's more there's more to be done, right? So uh, hopefully, hopefully next there. Yes, I mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so hopefully uh, we'll have some launches in 2020, but there's still a lot going on in in 2019, which is which is good. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about launches a little bit. I think if 2018 was the year of the CubeSat, I think 2019 is like year of the CubeSat two. <laughs> I think we're going to continue to see these small satellites and small launch providers just crop up all over the point, all over the place. Right? We have Rocket Lab. You have. Uh, Virgin, Vector Launch, Firefly. I'm sure there are companies that like no one has heard of yet. They're working sort of under, uh, you know, and quiet until they're ready. But I, I think this industry of small rockets lifting small satellites into orbit, I think is only going to take off more and more in 2019 and and following. You know, we saw it with uh, Mars Insight. NASA is using them for these big interplanetary missions now. And as the cost comes down and as they're simpler to build and run, this is going to be just the story of the year, I think, of lots and lots of new providers coming online for the first time to service people who don't need 
you know, a Falcon Heavy to launch uh, a satellite the size of a car. Right. Although there are probably going to be a couple Falcon Heavy launches this year, too, which is exciting. <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. Uh, yeah, they've got, I think, at least two booked. Um, I don't yeah. remember the timeline. But, yeah, we'll see the Falcon Heavy again. And we, uh, the SLS won't launch in 2019. But I think a year from now, we will be hopefully much closer to the SLS being a reality, knowing sort of the timeline in more concrete detail. The the report that was out earlier this year, you know, uh, with the delays and everything in SLS, we'll see how that shakes out. But uh, no doubt, as problematic as it is, that program continues to roll forward uh, at sort of a, when you start getting into it, sort of a blistering speed in places, but there's just a lot left to do. And uh, yeah. I think at a year from now, looking at 2020, hopefully we'll know a lot more about that rocket and when we will see it leave the pad. Right. Oh, and I should mention this this could be in addition to the year of commercial crew, this could be the year of space tourism. Um Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin are both getting closer and closer to being able theoretically to take paying customers into the edges of space in suborbital flights. Virgin Galactic, I think, has said that their next milestone will be basically like test tourists i'm unclear what you know not necessarily paying customers but that they want to test their uh spacecraft in tourist configuration where they've got you know people in seats uh who are riding on the spacecraft um that's something that they have to do before that they can like sort of open it to the general public who's paid you know millions of dollars to ride into space for a few minutes and blue origin apparently is also planning to do something like that but they're more secretive because it's blue origin um so this could be uh in addition to the commercial crew year the year of space tourism where we actually see somebody beyond the we've we've had international space station space tourism before but the idea that there's a tourist flight to space happening on a regular basis it's an outside shot we might see that uh this year and if not then uh it's going to get closer potentially for next year yeah i think so i think that's definitely a thing to look at and it's something that i don't i'm not particularly interested in as far as like the things that i like about the space industry but it's an important part of it and i think you're totally right that if we don't see anything lift off in 2019 i think we'll see see it very shortly thereafter i'm still not interested though i'm not i'm not gonna go Okay, that's fine. That's Sorry. fine. That's Have a good fine. trip. You've got your you've got the relay FM cube that's right. to that's right. talk yeah. to. That uh, China operates apparently. Well, I think that does it for the first liftoff of the year, Jason. Whew. Well, that's going to be a good year. Lots lots to talk about. Yeah. Um, and we've also got uh, moon landing in our future. So in early March, we're going to do our Apollo Nine episode. But guess what? Then there's Apollo Ten and Apollo Eleven. <laughs> And it's all happening. This is the 50th anniversary of the the moon landing coming up. So um, that'll be a busy thing for us as well. Yeah. So it's going to be, there's, again, I've said it before, I'll say it again. We're 88 episodes in and we were worried whether there would be enough to talk about. <laughs> 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 oh yeah, there's a lot to talk about. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, look, keeping out for that, I was actually looking in the Apollo planning spreadsheet just yesterday. I was like, oh man, these are coming up quick. <laughs> yeah, they are. Um, and, th- and then they spaced out a little bit again, but uh, we've got several coming up soon uh, with Apollo 9, the first episode of March. So keep an eye out for that. If you want to check out the links to stuff we talked about this week, though, head over to the website. It's relay.fm slash liftoff slash 88. 
while you're there, you can do a bunch of fun stuff. You can get in touch with us via email. There's a link to our Tumblr that Jason alluded to earlier, where he and I post links and stories to things uh, that we don't talk about on the show necessarily, but kind of come up across our radar in between episodes. Uh, this weekend, I published a, uh, a link to a video about uh, Launch uh, Complex 39. I learned a whole lot about this and like this really cool YouTube video. So I put a link uh, there for you to go check out. You can also get in touch on Twitter. You can find Jason there as Jay Snell. You can find me there as ISMH. Until our next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Adios. <laughs>